Nehemiah chapter 8. Have your Bibles, you know where we are. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13. We're going to go through verse chapter 9, 3 or 5. We'll depend on how much time I have when I get there. Chapter 8, starting in verse 13. All right, let me bring you up to speed. Last time we talked about bring the book. Bring the book out. Let the word do its work. God has spoken. Remember the context there of the word actually changing and affecting our lives. Here we pick that back up. We're going to pick up on that theme. And I want to start in this way. Do you have a similar problem that I have? Do you hear but not want to obey? Do you hear but you don't want to do? Let me, let me be honest with you. I don't even like the word obey. So I, I didn't put it in the main idea of the sermon simply because the word obey it's like, it, it's like it ruffles the feathers of my sinful flesh. And when somebody says obey, that immediately communicates to me, you're not in charge, you're gonna do what I tell you to do. And so I bristle at obey. Anybody, y'all are looking at me like I'm the only one in the room that bristles at the word obey. How many of you bristle at the word obey? All right, you're the honest ones. The rest of you are liars. So <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me point it out to us. We don't like good advice, even though we know it's right. We don't like mandates. We don't like laws. We might rationalize what we do, but personally obeying them, no. Just have everybody else obey them. For example, how many of you drink enough water? There's a couple of you. Most of us, uh-uh, not. Because I like soda. Coke tastes better. So, you know, whatever. Got to die somehow, right? How many of you wear your seatbelts all the time? Rule followers, legalists. All right, here's one. Don't put your backpacks in front of the elevator in the SSC. How many of you need to eat more vegetables? How many of you eating vegetables is putting lettuce on your cheeseburger? All right, we've got issues. Don't speed. That... That doesn't mean nine over on the interstate and four over in town either. There's a speed limit or a suggestion for some of us. No jaywalking. Jaywalking. Bring your ID to the recreation center. I do that one now. I do that one. I do that one. List your accurate weight on your driver's license. I got one guy back there raising his hand. He lists his accurate weight on his driver's license. When I was younger, I used to list it heavier than I was because I wanted to be bigger, and now I want to list it lower than I am. I'm never satisfied. Neither are most of us. We just aren't. Read all directions before beginning. That includes test, IKEA products, or Legos. I can put this together. It's only 975 pieces. It's not. Yeah, no, read the directions. Okay, what about no Instagram in class or chapel? That never, happens. never happens here, right? All right, so those are trivial. And yet the murmuring communicates to me that some of you have difficulty abiding by some of those. Let's think about the really hard ones the really hard biblical mandates that we really do all have a hard time with. 
Me included. Everybody. Every faculty, staff, student, visitor, guest at Cedarville. Think about the ones you have a hard time with. Forgive others as Christ forgave you. That's not easy. And it's, it's really not easy because sometimes in the sermon, I can forgive them. But then later, I want to go back and pick it back up and unforgive them. Let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth. Oh, you mean I can't say things like that? Not supposed to, no. Be anxious for nothing. All right, so we have a text. Our text today is going to show us what the power of the word does in our lives. We've brought out the book. They've read the book. They were weeping at the reading of the book. They said to them, no, 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 rejoice. This is a day the son to the Lord. Go home, celebrate, rejoice. So now we come to a text where they're going to hear the word and then they're going to obey the word and then there's going to be celebration because of the obedience to the word. So my main idea for you today, the main idea I want to get across to you today is for all of us that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. There's your main idea to write down. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we can hear or read or see the word and oftentimes we look at it or gloss over it or know we're not abiding by it and yet then we push away and we're not doers of the word. We know this not just from this text, but we know this from James 1.22 as well where James tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only. We understand in our hearts for us to claim the name of Christ, to read his word, to have a command, and then to disobey that command, and then to criticize others makes us a hypocrite. And we don't like that. So today we see a text that's going to challenge us to be doers of the word. Here's your outline. Explanation, application, and then celebration. Explanation, then application, and then celebration. All right, let me read the text to you. I'm going to let you be seated today because I've talked for so long already. We're going to move quick. 8, 13 through 15. That's what I want to read in the first part. On the second day, so this is after they had understood the words, they'd rejoice, they come back. The second day of that month, the very next day from our last sermon, the heads of the fathers, houses of all the people with the priest and the Levites came together. So all the leaders of the houses came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. All right, let's stop there. Let's look at the explanation that we see starting out here. They had read the word. After they read the word, the head of the father's houses come together with the priest, with the Levites, to study the word. Now, this is a university. The word study should be second nature to all of us, right? Should be. Should be second nature to all of us. So what does the word study mean? If you look it up, it's an application of the mental faculties to the acquisition of knowledge. It's careful or extended consideration. They heard the word. They went away. They celebrated. They came back the very next day. They came to study the word. They wanted to know more. 
There's a convicting aspect there of do we have that type appetite for the Word of God? Do we have an appetite not just to say, okay, I'm going to read the Word, I'm going to check the box, I'm going to have my quiet time, I'm going to hit my Bible before I get my breakfast, and so I check this box, and then off we go, and we read our verse, or we read our couple of verses. You see here an appetite, an appetite that I hope you have, that I hope that I will maintain for myself, that we long to study the word, to give thought to what we are reading, not just to read it, gloss over it, check the box and move on, but to actually understand, spend time with careful or extended consideration of what the word says. We note here again that it says that this was the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses. There's just great examples here of how we understand the Old Testament. It's the law that was given by the Lord to Moses. And when we come to the next sermon in chapter nine, oh, I'm excited about the next sermon as well. Because it lays out for us a summary of the Old Testament. It's gonna give us a grid of how we read the Old Testament, but I don't want you to skip over all of these different commands here where people would say to you, oh, Moses didn't write the Old Testament. You've got the JDP hypothesis. You've got all this stuff going on. No, no, no. When you look at Nehemiah, when you look at how the scripture interprets itself, it takes it literally. It looks and says exactly what it means. The Lord gave the law to Moses. That's what it told us. That's what he's repeating here. You can have confidence in the word that you see. What do they learn here? It says in verse 14, and they found, it's almost like there was a discovery. They're reading the word and all of a sudden they found it written in the law of the Lord that had been commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So there's an explanation. And it says in verse 15 that they should proclaim it, that they should publish it in the towns and in Jerusalem. So what are they supposed to do? Here it tells us they're to go out in the hills, they're to bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it was written. So here's your explanation. What do you do? What do you do when God's word has been given to you and you understand that you are supposed to act upon what's been given to you? Oh, that's nice. Or do you go out with a reckless abandon to say, that's what God's word says, that's what I'm gonna do. Here we see that there was an explanation that took place and it's followed up by an application. Look at what happens here in verse 16. So the people went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves. And look where they put the booths, each on his roof and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, they made booths and lived in the booths. And from the days of Jeshua or Joshua, a different spelling, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept this feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's think about what happened here. They went and got all these branches. They come and they make booths. In these booths, it's this this weird looking booth that they actually stayed in, they slept in. And it was to remind them, to reflect back 
on what had happened in the past to remind them that the children of Israel, as they were rescued out of Egypt, as they were wandering, that they had boots, that they were travelers, they were nomads. It's to remind them that their trust is not to be in the walls that had just been finished, the walls that had been completed, but their trust is to be in the God who secures them, the God who protects them, because for 40 years they were in the wilderness. And this time in the wilderness, their clothes didn't wear out, their feet didn't swell, they lived in booths, they were protected by God, they weren't protected by a structure. And so our trust too is not in the things of this world, it's not in the walls of this world, but it's in the God that controls and created this world. It reminds them that you can trust God. Now imagine with me, if you will, being a, being a teenager on social media during this time in Israel's life. Dad, look, my, my friends, he, he just got a Tesla. And we're going to go in a booth for a week? We're going to go in this stick house and sleep in a stick house for a week? And that's all I've got to post on social media? Dad, this is weird. All of my friends make fun of me because we're sleeping in a, in a booth. We've got a house. I've got a bed. That bed's a whole lot more comfortable than this thing is. Why in the world are we doing this? And you know, to some degree, that's the point. Because when people ask, why are you doing this? It's a chance to remind. It's a chance to discuss. It's a chance to talk about, remember what the Lord has done. Remember that we do this once a year for seven days, sleeping in a booth, even though it may be odd, even though it may be awkward. The people of God have always been a little bit odd because we trust in God, a God that sent his son, that went to a cross, that went to a grave, that got up out of the grave, that ascended and is coming again on a white horse, and he's going to make all things new. We don't look at this world in the same way everybody else looks at this world. And this gave them an opportunity to look back at the Israelites being rescued out of slavery in Egypt, brought forward through the Red Sea on dry ground in the wilderness for 40 years, marching through to walls of Jericho that just fell down so they could go in. It's a reminder that there is a God and you can trust him. So I say to you this morning, God will provide, trust God. He may not provide for all of our wants. He'll provide for our needs according to his riches and mercy. I suspect there are many of us here today that need to hear that message. Acceptance into graduate school. God's going to provide for his will. It may not be exactly what we want, but for his will. That, that job that's lingering out there, that summer internship, that summer opportunity, that mission trip, God will provide. We can trust him. The wisdom for that relationship, it's not easy, it's not trivial. Hard decisions. God, what do we do? God will provide. We can trust him. God will also protect. We don't look out at this world and think about our own might, our own muscles, our own power our own military, our own firearms, our own things of those natures. We don't look out at that and say, this is what will protect me. We don't look out at our own material possessions, at our money, at our houses, at our wealth and say, that is what will protect me. We understand that this life is frail, that this life can be gone. It's a good thing for us to go to funerals and realize how life goes in just a vapor. 
It's a good thing for us to think about the fact that we are here today and gone tomorrow. We don't trust in all these things. We trust in our Lord who will protect us and provide for us. And two, we witness to God's faithfulness. We do this in many different ways. We do this in our society through celebrations. We do it on July 4th when we remember things about our nation. We do it at Easter. We do it at Christmas. We do it every time we commemorate the Lord's Supper in a local church. We do that supper so that we look back in remembrance at what God has accomplished on the cross. We look around in community with those who are celebrating with us. And it says you do this as often as you do it until he comes. We look forward in celebration that God will return. So we have even a meal in our communities, in our local churches that celebrate and remind us of these things. It should also remind us that they were pilgrims in the wilderness. God gave them a land, but they were pilgrims. We've been going through 1 Peter with our faculty, and 1 Peter 1.17 says, throughout your time of exile, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's a reminder. They read about it, they went out, and they did it. And then it says in verse 18, and note this, day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. So they heard from the book of the law, they were convicted, they mourned, oh my, look at what we've done, look at how sinful we are, look at how great, awesome, glorious God is, and then they were weeping, and they said, no, go celebrate, and then they came back, and they read about, you should do a feast of booze, and so they go out, and they do the feast of booze, they obey, and then they come back, and they read from the law day after day after day for seven days, and then on the eighth day, it says there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. There's a commandment in Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13, that every seven or so years you should have this where you read through the law at the very end. So let me make sure you've got the timeline. Beginning of chapter eight, day one of the seventh month, seventh month, where we start from today, verse 13, on the second day of the seventh month. They read, oh, we've got to prepare for the Feast of Booths. So they had a couple of weeks to go prepare for it. On the 10th day would have been the Day of Atonement. That day of atonement where they celebrate and bring in the scapegoat and they put their hands on the scapegoat and they have this celebration where the scapegoat takes their sins and carries them all far away. It's not mentioned in our text here, but that's the 10th of this month. And then the 15th to the 22nd of this month, they have the Feast of Booths. I don't know what they did on the 23rd. I don't know if they cleaned up, if they took down their booths, if they played Call of Duty. I don't know what they did on the 23rd. Maybe they were at home weeping and crying over their sin, mourning over the fact they'd been disobedient to God. We don't know. But then on the 24th, it says they showed up again and assembled. Look at chapter nine, verse one. On the 24th day of this month, the people, all of the people gathered back around and they were assembled and look at how they showed up on the 24th. They were fasting. No breakfast. No food. They were in sackcloths. Itchy, unpopular, weird clothes to symbolize mourning, to symbolize being uncomfortable with their state. And they put earth on their heads. From dust you have been made and to dust you shall return. 
Look at the pattern we see here. The word of the Lord was read for an extended time. They wept because they realized in this book who we are. It's not just them. It's all of us. And they realized how great and gracious and glorious God is. No, 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 go celebrate. Oh, there's a feast of booths. We have to do this. We have to abide by what God's word says. And they do it. And they come back and they read the word. And then they go home for one day and they come back and all the people gathered. And when the people came back together, they came back fasting with sackcloth and ashes. They, they had remorse. They had grief over the way that they had acted. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins. Oh, I, I, can't, I can't confess my sins. Somebody's going to think bad about me. Can we just push that aside? And can we just all admit that this is a room full of sinners? And if there's anyone in the room that has no temptations and no struggles and no sins that they need to confess, first of all, there's not. But if there is, you're the one that needs to be up here. Can you just recognize that all of your faculty, all of the staff, everybody on this campus that's here to minister to you, to serve you, that, that in our minds, we're just a little farther down that sanctification road, hopefully, than you are. We're just telling you, hey, I went through that, and as I went through that, here are some things that can help you get through that as we all seek to follow Christ together. Nobody here is saying, I've got it all together, I'm perfect. And if you're here and you're saying to everybody else, I've got it all together and I'm perfect, you're lying to yourself and you're lying lying to God and you're not in a good spot. The best thing we can do, you don't have to confess your sins to the world. You don't need to go on Instagram and post all of your mess. You don't need to get up here and tell everybody about all the stuff you're going through. The best thing you can do though is be honest to confess them before others. Brothers and sisters that know you, that care about you, that love you, that aren't gonna use the words to come back and hurt you. They want what's best for you. Lock arms with them. Go to faculty members or staff members or mentors that you trust. Lock arms with them. Pray together. Seek the Lord together so that together we have a community that bears one another burdens that seeks the Lord together they confess their sins and they confess the iniquities of their fathers we're going to get there in chapter 9 that's next time it says they stood in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of the day they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God so if the day is 12 hours and the night's 12 hours. A quarter of the day would be three hours. So three hours they gathered and read from the book of the law and in three hours they confessed their sins and worshiped God. We don't know how it worked. We don't know what it was like. But how many of you would be excited about going to a six-hour service? Maybe on the right day. Here's my prayer for us. When, when I pray for revival and somebody says, what does that look like? I think revival looks like a brokenness over our sin, a desire to follow God, an application and obedience to do whatever God's word says do. I would love for there to be a day where we were so overcome by the power of the word and by the spirit that we just said, you know what? We, we have business to do. We're canceling classes today. Yeah, that's right. At a university, wouldn't it be great if the Lord moved in such a powerful way in our midst that we said, 
We've got more important things to do than whatever's on the syllabus today. We need to get right with God. We need to confess our sin before the Lord. We need to spend time worshiping him. I don't know if God will ever do it. It's up to God. He can. I'm not doubting the fact he can. But when you hear me pray for revival on Friday mornings, when we pray that the Lord would move, when we pray that we would see in his word really who we are, when we catch a glimpse of really just the idle factories that our hearts are and how bent away from God our flesh is and how much we need him and how gracious God is and has been to the Israelites as they repeatedly sin to us as we repeatedly sin, we see all of that. It should drive us to our knees to say, God, I want my affection set on you. I want my desires to be focused on you. Lord, all of these distractions of this earth, I don't want them to pull me away. But there are times our affections aren't even set in the right spot. We desire the wrong things. Quickly, let's look at celebration. Celebration, we see it in chapter 8, verse 17. It's said at this point there was a, a very great celebration. Very great rejoicing. They celebrated like it hadn't been celebrated since the days of Joshua. Now, they had celebrated before. We, we have evidence in Scripture. I don't know what this means. They celebrated in, like they hadn't since that point in time. Maybe it was the fact everybody celebrated. Maybe it was the fact that they built booths but didn't sleep in them or live in them. Maybe it was the fact that they just weren't rejoicing as much. Maybe it was the fact that the original celebration, they had just come from 40 years in the wilderness, and here they had just come from not having walls. And so it was just more real to them. There was just a, a realization in life. But there was some way that this was different and it had a very great rejoicing. You look at chapter nine, verse three, and it says as they were doing this, that they worshiped the Lord their God. It says in chapter nine, verse five, that they blessed the Lord. That verse five, I'll just read that verse to you. It says, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. They had been changed and affected by the word and the response out of the overflow of their hearts of what they wanted to do is praise God because he is worthy. May that be the response of the word in our lives and my life as well. I want to be honest with you in closing. We are really good at being fake. We are really good at whitewashing the tombs. We're really good at not dealing with our own sinfulness, selfishness. Here's what we do. We think the best of ourselves and the worst of others. We point out their selfishness while not recognizing the selfishness that's in my own heart. We forget about our own rebellion as we quickly rail on everybody else's rebellion, we cast that first stone, even though we should walk away. We're really lousy at being genuine, authentic, repentant, humble, or remorseful. My prayer for myself, so I'll leave you out of it. My prayer for myself is that every day I would wake up and see myself in the word as a mirror for who I really am. 
that I would recognize the dots, the planks, the specks, the rebellion, the false lies of the devil that I have bought into, that I would replace all of that with the truth of the gospel in my own life every single day and do it anew every single day so that every day I could live a life of wisdom pointed to the Lord characterized by living in the power of the Holy Spirit in my life so that I could be a good servant to him and point others to him and his glory. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for you. So here are some questions just to conclude with. Do you need to repent of a sin in your life? A habitual sin that has you chained in bondage right now, you know what it is. Will you today find somebody that you can talk to about that sin? No, 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 you don't understand, I can't do that. I can't do that, that, what are they gonna think about me? They're gonna think you're finally getting serious about your sin. I can't do that. I care too much about what others think or what others say. That sin, if I go tell somebody about that sin, I'm going to be in trouble. You're already in trouble. You're in trouble spiritually with God. The best thing you can do is put light on the situation. Are you miserable? Here's the problem. Is that a Christian living in habitual sin is the most miserable person on the planet. They're not lost. So they don't even enjoy their sin anymore. Maybe for a season, but not really. They don't enjoy it. And then they don't enjoy fellowship with the Spirit because they're out of the will of God. So can I say to you, the best way you can have celebration in this life is to live consistently for the Lord, confess your sin, and live for Him. Do you know the Word, but are you not applying it? Yeah, some days that's all of us. Some days that's really hard. So are we quick to confess or repent afterwards? And you know my biggest fear is that you're here and you're faking it. Wait a second. You think there are actually some students at a Christian university faking it? Yeah, I do. In in fact, I I think I know it. Because we hear testimonies. Testimonies of some faculty and staff who have come back who will tell you that their story was they were here faking it. And then one day the Holy Spirit lassoed them, got a hold of their heart, pulled them in in a way that they couldn't help. And God changed them radically. Alumni stories, if that's you, if you're here and you know in your heart you're faking it, there's no better day than today to talk to somebody to get that right. May all of us be doers of the word and not hearers only. Dear God, we are sinful and we are prone to wonder. God, we need your help. We need your spirit to speak to us through your word in such a powerful way that we realize who we are and who you are. And Lord, change our affections and our desires so that we will pursue you. Lord, that we we love you. Lord, that we will flee from our sin. Lord, that we will confess our sin. Lord, that we will take the risk of telling others about our sin so that we will no longer pursue it, that we'll stop hiding it, we'll stop trying to manage it, we'll stop making peace with it, and that we will flee from it. Lord, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you are dismissed.